Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Uh, as you mentioned, my name is Brent Seller. I'm the Senior Research Fellow at Heritage Foundation for Naval Warfare and Advanced Technologies. And in the current events that we're seeing in the South China Sea, I'm very proud to introduce Ambassador Brathwaite, who was the last Navy Secretary of the Navy, to discuss an idea I think that's very timely, and that is the resurrecting of the First Fleet and the thinking and the thought process, process behind that. But first, a little background on the Ambassador himself. Ambassador Kent Brathwaite joins us today to discuss the reestablishment of First Fleet, which has a long and illustrious history but it's coming back to us in a new and an updated format that's very timely for great power competition. He is particularly well-placed to discuss this timely topic, given he was responsible for bringing the idea forward last fall while the 77th Secretary of the Navy. His rationale, which we will learn more about this morning, was informed by a career of military service, political life, and leadership in business. A native of Livornia, Michigan, and a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy in 1994, and has advanced degrees from the University of Pennsylvania, Naval War College, and the Air and Command Staff College. Prior to being the last Secretary of the Navy, he was Ambassador to Norway from 2018 to 2020, a country and an ally that plays a particularly important role in great power competition, not only with Russia in the North Atlantic, but increasingly with China in the Arctic. An aviator with combat experience, Ambassador Brethwaite is also expert in the art of strategic communications. Attaining the rank of Rear Admiral and retiring as the Chief of the Navy's public, public Affairs. While always a patriot and dedicated public servant, he has also been an effective business leader as well as active in politics, insights which have served him and the U.S. Navy well while Secretary of the Navy. Today he joins us to discuss more how he came to the conclusion that the Navy needed a first fleet and what it offers the nation in global maritime competition that is playing out today in the Black Sea, Eastern Mediterranean, and most importantly and sharply in the South and East China Seas as the Chinese People Liberation Army Navy continues uh, in operations in the South China Sea against uh, the Philippines and they're in the vicinity of Whitsun Reef as well as around Taiwan. Without further ado, over to you, Ambassador. Thanks, Brent, very much. And uh, about uh, the only thing that I have to, uh, to correct you on because if there's any of my classmates out there listening, um, you lowered my age by about 10 years because I'm class of 1984 from the U.S. Naval Academy. And uh, uh, those uh, the gals and guys out there would uh, would be upset if I didn't correct the record for that. But uh, real pleasure uh, to be with you, shipmate. And uh, as uh, you and I have discussed, I am extremely pleased to be here with you today. Um, extremely pleased at the work that you and the foundation has done to advance uh, the naval interests of uh, the United States. Um, First Fleet, wow, so where do you begin? Um, I begin uh, as both uh, a uniformed member of the United States Navy, um, as well as a businessman. And what I learned in business was that every once in a while, it's good to uh, take the ship and uh, turn into the wind and drop the anchor and assess uh, your place uh, in the market space. Um, how are you aligned uh, to your competitors? Um, how do you ensure that you have the right number of bosun's mates? right number of, uh, of engineers aboard, um, all those things uh, you need to take into consideration. So 
when I came into the role, actually prior to uh, uh, taking the oath of office, I uh, began to think strategically about how the United States Navy was organized, predicated on uh, the threat picture of uh, great power competition. And uh, I felt pretty strongly that uh, we needed more emphasis in places where we are being challenged the most. And uh, I thought about uh, the structure of the Navy and what had worked uh, historically for the Navy may not work in the future uh, for the Department of the Navy. So um, I literally uh, thought through uh, a number of different uh, options as uh, we began to assess uh, the best way to uh, to go to market um, as the uh, Department of the Navy. Um, one of those ideas was uh, came back to Fleet Forces Command, uh, which was a concept uh, initiated uh, back in 2001 by then CNO Byrne Clark uh, to create standardization across uh, the Department of the Navy, um, and uh, which in 2001 made a lot of sense. Um, we had come out of an era of the Cold War. Uh, we really didn't have that kind of great uh, power competitor anymore. Um, and creating that kind of standardization and understanding how uh, the Navy uh, could go to market uh, made a lot of sense. However, as everything uh, change is, uh, is one of those things that uh, uh, is inevitable and uh, one of those things that uh, uh, I believe to be a good professional in any space that you're in, uh, you have to embrace it and embrace it openly. Um, so uh, we find, as I have learned, I'm a, a bit of a, a history nerd, um, a lot of the vectors for the future are found uh, in the lessons of the past. So the Navy had um, great success uh, going to sea uh, with two fleets, an Atlantic fleet and a Pacific fleet. And uh, with uh, new pressures in the Atlantic uh, uh, from Russia, um, I felt it uh, very important to uh, resurrect the Atlantic fleet. But before I did that, I thought um, about the numbered fleets because historically the numbered fleets have been the operational fleets. They've been the at-sea uh, units that have actually um, uh, done the, uh, the work at the tip of the sphere. Um, and when I assessed our laydown in the Pacific and thinking about the 7th Fleet and its area of responsibility, I thought it was just too great. Um, and then uh, discussions with uh, some of my peers, colleagues, and mentors, um, I thought that uh, bringing back uh, the 1st Fleet and reorient it, reorienting it uh, to the Indo-PACOM space, focused more towards uh, the West and into the Indian Ocean, made a lot of sense. Um, and uh, it uh, met with uh, a receptive audience, both at the DOD level, as well as uh, a lot of the operators um, across the Navy. So uh, that's kind of uh, how it came about and uh, where my mind was. Um, and uh, I believe that uh, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, one that I hope that uh, my uh, successor embraces as well uh, once he's announced and confirmed. Thank you, Ambassador. Um, I, I'm a bit remiss. I forgot to announce to the audience is if you have questions, there'll be, there's a question uh, window to, to open up. Please send those. Some of you are already sending them. And I'll try my best, Ambassador, to, to packet those together that are common or similar and get it and try and get as many of the audience's questions put forward to you. Uh, I guess before we go any further, one question that kind of comes to mind when you when the idea when you first announced the idea, or even when you were first talking with the staff uh, at the Pentagon, uh, how was it received? I guess would be a, a kind of a key question. And how did you navigate those waters? Uh, and I guess any like stories that you want to share with us also when you were traveling 
and talking with our allies and partners on it. Yeah, so it's funny. Is the, the one thing that uh, I think uh, everybody um, equally uh, can be challenged by is change. I mean, we uh, like to get into our routines and uh, we like to be in a space that is most comfortable to us. And few people in the world uh, embrace change the way that it needs to be embraced. But as I mentioned a few moments ago, change is inevitable. And so I learned uh, in my first squadron, um, and I think I was conveying this story to you the other day, Brent, uh, but I remember well, uh, Lieutenant Commander Jimmy Collins, um, we were getting ready to uh, um, go on uh, Christmas leave. And I was uh, pretty excited because I'd been overseas for a while and I was looking forward to going home and seeing my parents in Michigan. And uh, all of a sudden we had an emergent meeting uh, in the squadron and uh, uh, we had uh, um, to uh, um, reconsider that because there had uh, emerged um, a Soviet submarine that we needed to track uh, immediately. So, uh, you know, we turned to and did that. And uh, I remember going to the squadron operations officer as a young ensign at the time afterwards and, uh, you know, asking him that uh, that apply to me. And uh, he said, well, of course, it applies to all of us. And uh, I said, well, that means that I'm not going home on leave. He goes, means you're not going home on leave. Um, you know, we have an immediate threat. And uh, look at young man, if you don't understand uh, that in life things change, uh, you're going to really struggle. And so the totality of that lesson was that, uh, you know, change is inevitable. So here with what we were um, up against, um, you know, I felt that, uh, again, we need to reorient uh, the structure of the department. And, uh, you know, um, one thing that the Navy doesn't do well is is embrace that kind of change. Um, and so uh, I had to build up, um, you know, support from within to get people to think again about, uh, you know, what might be possible. With any organization, you know, private sector, public sector, you only have so many resources that you can allocate in certain spaces. So that became a discussion point as well. And we had to work through the details of that. Um, but all in all, I think it is a concept that uh, has found some support. And uh, again, I, I'm, I'm, you know, hopeful that it will continue to, uh, you know, catch traction. Oh, yes. Well, one of the questions that I that I know from our friends uh, in the region is, uh, I guess, how was it received by our allies on the other side of the dateline? Uh, I know you were traveling at one point in time when when the uh, the notion was re was raised last year. Is there anything you can share with the the group on on that? Maybe Singapore. Yeah, so you know, uh, well, again, being a you know, person who uh, has got some background in uh, strategic communications, uh, you know, very important to uh, you know come at this uh, not only from the the you know operationally as to what makes most sense uh, for um, you know the department itself, but also the message that it sends to our allies. Um, so that announcement was made on purpose on the eve, as you mentioned, of the trip that I was taking. Uh, you know, to that part of the world so that I could begin to, you know, plant the seeds for the concept. Um, and I was uh, warmly received. Uh, the idea um, seemed to uh, be one that, uh, you know, many others, uh, if they hadn't been thinking specifically about the structure and the resurrection of the first fleet, it was one that did, uh, you know, meet with, uh, with you know, a positive uh, perspective uh, once I had that the opportunity to have those conversations uh, with the MINDEFs of those nations that would be uh, um, impacted by it. And that included India, Singapore, and Japan um, all embraced the idea. 
Um, of course, devil's in the details, Brent, and, uh, you know, where the laydown is and, you know, how we would go ahead and uh, position that fleet uh, would be one that would have to be worked out in those details. I can tell you this, that I'm a big advocate uh, for naval uh, power projection, as we discussed. And uh, as such, I believe that one of the things that a Navy and a Marine Corps team does and does very well is create um, unpredictability and flexibility in how we deploy our assets. So one of the concepts that I felt uh, very early on is, again, taking a lesson from the past, most of our numbered fleets were always at sea um, uh, um, entities. So they operated aboard a flagship. And I think that's a concept that we need to embrace again, uh, especially um, as we enter into this new period of great power competition. Uh, so looking at first fleet um, and again, building up advocates within the department uh, uh, Chairman Milley being one of them uh, was a big advocate for that expeditionary capability. Um, so as we look to the future and we think about, you know, how we can resurrect and recreate a first fleet, I think it needs to be expeditionary and I think it needs to be uh, sea-based. Um, so that uh, was one of those things as well that I shared with our allies. Uh, so they understood what kind of, you know, support would be required from them. So uh, one of the things, so there's a lot of questions to kind of maybe pivot a little bit now from, you know, the announcement, but also the conceptualization of what this fleet, this new fleet would look like and understand what it begins with and then what it transitions are two different things and timelines to consider. But there's several questions uh, coming also from previous Seven Fleet commanders and also some other Westpac sailors as well. Uh, where are the dividing lines? In your state, one of your public releases, you talked about a first fleet at the crossroads of the Indo-Asia Pacific. What, in I guess the relationship, I guess another way to ask the question is, what would the relationship be between first fleet at those crossroads with third fleet, fifth fleet, and seventh fleet? Yeah, no, it's a, a great question. And of course, uh, uh, issue of much debate uh, within the department itself. Um, you know, you're talking about uh, the largest ocean of the world, and you're talking about uh, area of responsibility currently for the Seventh Fleet that takes in, uh, you know, um, most of the Western Pacific, uh, the South China Sea, uh, which, you know, as you mentioned in your opening remarks, has become an area of increased tension. Um, and then the entire Indian Ocean, all the way over to uh, where the Fifth Fleet AOR begins. Um, so there's a real void there uh, because... One numbered fleet uh, can't double down and cover, you know, all of the emerging challenges in that uh, part of the world. So, uh, again, uh, using logic here, um, if third fleet is coming across and has most of uh, uh, the eastern Pacific and uh, the seventh fleet has most of the western, northern, western Pacific, then uh, at the crossroads of where the southern part of the southern China uh, Sea uh, bridges into the Indian Ocean, um, you've got uh, the Straits and you've got Singapore. Um, so again, no secret that uh, one of uh, of my initiatives was to engage with the Singaporeans and see uh, what their level of uh, receptiveness would be. Um, as uh, we know, they have built uh, a pretty significant naval base there in Changshi, and uh, they did that uh, after we moved out of the Philippines in the early 1990s, uh, predicated on the belief that uh, they could host um, a larger footprint of uh, U.S. Navy uh, vessels if, uh, if that requirement uh, um, emerged. Well, I think that requirement has emerged. So now we have to turn it over to the diplomats. And working with the State Department uh, and my uh, 
my colleague Mike Pompeo and Mark Esper on this concept early on. Um, you know, that uh, was an initiative that uh, was being carried out in tandem. But I also believe that if we don't put the thought out there, we don't inject it into the public space and get people thinking about it, um, then, you know, we're not advancing the concept. And so you, know, you can do a lot of work behind the curtain, but uh, you sometimes have got to get your thoughts out there so people can begin to debate it. People can begin to understand, uh, you know, what it is and where you want to go. And so that was the impetus behind the announcement prior to the trip. No, that's a very good, and I think a very important point also for the audience is that if it was, I guess, left to be fully developed and matured behind closed doors, it probably would have never matured or developed behind closed doors, so to speak. It had to, it had to kick it off. People, right? People hate change, right? So uh, again, anytime you're changing, especially something the size and scale of the United States Navy, uh, you know, um, you know, it, it's a huge challenge. So uh, there's another series of questions. Uh, a colleague uh, of mine, Hunter Styers, has talked about trying to put together a counterinsurgency on the seas in the South China Sea. And that, that kind of connotes a certain type of footprint, a certain type of class of ship and operations. Knowing that in Singapore, in, we have our rotational forces there, which are LCS, and you also have expeditionary high-speed vessels that are, that are always resident in the region, what do you view as the ideal kind of composition? We've talked about, you and I have talked before, about a flagship being the, and I, you mentioned also in your comments this morning, but I guess for the mission set that would be the here and now, what kind of ships, what kind of composition would be realistic to accept? And then for the missions that would be required for a first fleet at that crossroads? That's a great question. Um, you know, one of the discussion points that CNO Gilday and I had was about, you know, a, a, a role for the LCS. The LCS coming into my job uh, as secretary was not uh, a hall form that I would ever embrace. I wasn't a fan of it uh, at its inception, uh, but I've become to become a big fan of it. Uh, first and foremost, having had the opportunity to be aboard those ships um, and have a chance to interact with the crews um, and uh, the pride that they bring. Uh, you know, uh, to their service. Um, and then when you really peel back uh, what the ship's capabilities are, um, you know, something like being, you know, uh, in the Straits or in other littoral uh, spaces is perfect for that ship. So looking to create a squadron in Singapore uh, that would have, uh, you know, patrol responsibilities in that part of the world, um, I think uh, um, would be a, a great role for uh, the LCS. LCS actually is a Corvette. Um, one of my other initiatives that I wanted to do is rebrand it. Um, you know, sometimes uh, that's a little more challenging. I've done that in the private sector, rebranding companies. Not an easy thing to do, but, uh, you know, that ship was misnamed from the beginning. It is a super Corvette um, and, uh, you know, something that uh, I, I do think has a role, and especially uh, in this kind of space. But, um, you know, our DDGs, I mean, looking at, uh, you know, their capabilities, uh, looking at the uh, the, the, the scope of that uh, area of responsibility and uh, what that would mean to, you know, providing the right resources there. Again, uh, you know, CNO Gilda and I talked about uh, an enhanced presence for our DDGs, moving them from other parts of the world and putting them um, there. So uh, again, I think a mixed, I think we have the right platforms, especially with the new FFG coming on board, the, the Constellation class frigate. Um, you know, we can do a lot of, uh, uh, you know, enhanced power projection uh, using a platform like that as well. 
there's a couple other questions. Kind of dig a little deeper on this. Uh, if we're going to have to redistribute naval forces in the in the near term, which means we're going to take them from one of the other numbered fleets. Where would you see, I guess, the prioritization? If you had to, if you had to move a destroyer or uh, a cruiser from another fleet to to build out a first fleet presence that's required, would you go to a seven fleet or would you take from like a a different numbered fleet? Um. Wow, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think that part of the world everybody recognizes is uh, become more and more important. So uh, I think you'll see a greater emphasis. I mean, we restructured PACOM and created Indo-PACOM uh, because the Indian Ocean has become, um, you know, uh, more important uh, to us for many reasons. Um, and so I think when you look at uh, what the challenges are, um, and again, like any or organization, like a family, I mean, you sit around your kitchen table and decide, okay, we have this many resources. How are we going to uh, allocate them? How are you going to spend that that we have? Um, you know, these are all uh, discussions, debates uh, that I know are ongoing now. But I would argue uh, in the face of great power competition that, um, you know, this is one part of the world that uh, – We've got to place some more emphasis on, and that means we have to bolster the resources that we have and assign them there on a more permanent basis. Again, that was the whole concept behind creating a first fleet and assigning it to that part of the world so we would have a permanent footprint. You know, it kind of reminds me of, you know, wherever the challenges are. Um, I live outside the city of Philadelphia, and uh, I used to work for a U.S. senator in Pennsylvania, um, and having the opportunity to work with law enforcement there you know, they go to where the problems are. I mean, they establish precincts around the cities uh, to be, you know, in proximity to where the flashpoints could be, you know, and I think the United States Navy could take a lesson from that and think about where the flashpoints are in the world and where we need to have uh, a presence. Arguably, that's part of the world we need to have a presence and, uh, you know, we need to prioritize that. Yes, sir. So I think uh, I'm hearing Seventh Fleet is probably on the receiving end of more assets as well as a first fleet, it certainly wouldn't be an inter interthetre kind of redistribution. It'd have to be something from outside if there had to be any yeah. move. But I think the consensus yeah. is, and I think you would agree, that the nation needs a larger Navy. I know 355 before <laughs> the Trump administration, it was up, actually up higher with the FNFS. And, and now we're, we're waiting to see where the Biden administration goes. Uh, there's some questions about the budget and the implications on that. But I did want to. I did want to deal. There, there was another very good question about composition and mission of First Fleet, and that is Coast Guard. Would you see, uh, maybe unlike or like other numbered fleets, a presence of Coast Guard staff or even Coast Guard assets as a part of a First Fleet? Great question. You know, and one that I really hadn't thought about. Although I will tell you this: that uh, you know, I had uh, reached out uh, to the Commandant to the Coast Guard and talk to uh, the acting Homeland Security Secretary, you know, about uh, greater cooperation, greater partnership between the Coast Guard. I'm a huge advocate for the United States Coast Guard. Their professionalism um, is, uh, is just um, top shelf. And uh, as such, you know, you already know that they cruise with us um, in many of our battle groups and, uh, you know, have helped us power project around uh, the globe. Um, you know, but they struggle as well, getting the resources that they need within a department that may not necessarily be aligned 
you know, uh, in the same way as we are within the Department of Defense. Therein begs a question that, you know, uh, during wartime, uh, they, of course, fall under uh, the Department of the Navy. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of synergy there. So looking at how, you know, we go from here to there and involve the Coast Guard, absolutely. Uh, they're a force multiplier. Uh, they, uh, you know, especially uh, with the new cutter coming online, uh, um, you know, could be that, uh, you know, uh, that, again, additive uh, to the fleet structure, uh, you know, that would take us to the next level. Um, but again, touching on what you touched about, uh, the reality here is, like anything, I mean, when you sit down and you think about the resources you have, it's always better to have more. Um, and I believe very strongly, as, you know, many uh, individuals are talking about uh, currently, we do need a bigger Navy. I mean, 90% of trade moves across the sea lanes of the world. And as such, we need to make sure as uh, the per predominant uh, naval force uh, that they remain free and open uh, for that kind of trade. And there isn't any other uh, force in the world uh, other than the United States Navy that has the capability of doing that. Mm. Um, thankfully, we have great allies and partners that work with us. Um, I uh, visited New Delhi to talk to the Indian uh, leadership uh, around uh, uh, greater cooperation. Uh, that seems to be a continuing theme that uh, the United States government uh, writ large is uh, is engaged in. I would think that, uh, you know, as we look to the future, um, you know, we're more and more engaged uh, with India. Um, you know, their ships are uh, incredibly uh, uh, capable uh, vessels, uh, first rate uh, you know, professional sailors, um, again, another great uh, force multiplier. So when you think, Brent, about great power competition and you think about uh, that that uh, we have um, in, uh, in our quiver as far as arrows, it isn't necessarily only the fleet structure we have, but it's also the fleet structure of those allies and partners that we can bring to bear um, and India being key in that, uh, in that calculus. So there... Um... There's been some interesting developments in the last year. You've got the General Miley, who's become, I guess, a navalist, having a, a, an army guy that's become a navalist and arguing as the chairman for you know, more emphasis to the Navy. I, I guess the, one of the questions on, on the audience is, uh, any insights as to what brought him around that you could offer? Uh, but it seems to be a, a more broadly accepted a conventional wisdom in DC. And any insights as to, as to why or what's been I guess the argument that's won the day to have people that see the Navy as an important, if not the critical lever in great power competition. Well, a couple things here. So I got to tip my hat to, to my friend and colleague, General Berger, uh, the commandant of the Marine Corps. He was an incredible visionary. But again, uh, you know, visiting the past to get ideas um, on what was and what could be again. Um, and uh, General Milley, uh, no secret, he's the son proud son of a, uh, a Marine uh, who fought at Guadalcanal um, and appreciating the uh, flexibility, uh, the adaptability, the unpredictability that a Navy Marine Corps team, um, you know, he's a wise chairman and recognizes that it's the, you know, Department of the Navy that has that, uh, that capability. So we have to invest more um, and we have to uh, look across the entire DOD um, and think about where we need to place our emphasis. And it comes back to the Department of the Navy. You know, it's kind of funny, uh, 
my friend Mark Esper is writing a book now, and uh, we were talking about it the other day. And, you know, everybody whispered down the lanes, especially within the Department of the Navy when my name was announced. Um, you know, my best friend is a West Point graduate, and uh, he's a classmate of Mark Esper's. And so I've known Mark for, you know, 20 plus years. And so the whispering rumor was that I was the the Army's Navy guy uh, coming into the role as a, the secretary. And uh, nothing could be further from the truth because I'm a navalist at heart and I love uh, the Navy and the Marine Corps. And looking at, you know, our rich history and what we've done and looking at what, you know, our current capabilities are. I mean, we are an incredibly uh, professional and capable service that continues to become uh, better each and every day. We need the resources uh, properly allocated to do that. And so one third, one third, one third doesn't necessarily um, you know, uh, meet the requirements of uh, great power competition. And thankfully, we had people like General Milley, like Mark Esper in the seats that recognized that. And, uh, you know, takes nothing away from the Army and the Air Force um, and their capabilities. But, you know, they are huge organizations that do not have that kind of uh, flexibility, um, you know, that expeditionary capability as we do in the Navy and the Marine Corps. Um, so that's why I think a lot of that, uh, you know, uh, thought and perspective has come out of the Department of the Defense in uh, in recent years and has helped create the current vector that we seem to be on. And, uh, you know, the current secretary seems to have embraced that as well. So on that, uh, it's interesting you mentioned the Marine Corps. Uh, there's actually several questions that have come in also. So it's it's no secret that the Marines' concept of operation will be in the first island chain and it's Expeditionary Advanced Basing Operations, EABO, and that the Navy is going to be teamed with the Marines and, and also the Army increasingly. How does um, First Fleets kind of fit into that operational construct Does it and how would it enable it? And on a day-to-day -day competition piece, I guess the relationship between that uh, First Fleet and the Marines. So you've got three MEF in Okinawa. Would there be an element, a marine element, that would be associated with First Fleet, or would it be a relationship shared with 3MEF? Uh, you know, I haven't thought through those kind of details, Brent, to be very honest with you. Um, but I would think that, you know, it would be more aligned to 3MEF um, in that, uh, you know, we don't currently have um, the kind of structure that uh, uh, marries up, you know, specifically with an expeditionary fleet um, I think about fourth fleet, um, you know, um, I think about second fleet. So, you know, again, um, you know, that's one of those things, as I mentioned, Admiral Davidson and Admiral Aquilino, um, about bringing more resources, bringing more capabilities, thinking through, you know, how uh, it could be uh, an advantage to have, you know, another numbered fleet, a presence. I mean, a lot of what we're working towards um, is not only uh, projection of power from sea to shore, but also deterrent force. Yes. I mean, I'm a big uh, fan of uh, General George Marshall, who uh, received the Nobel Peace Prize uh, in Oslo back in the early 50s. And when he was asked about winning uh, the next world war, um, you know, uh, he basically responded with the only way we can guarantee or ensure victory in World War III is to prevent it. And so that's a big role of the Department of the Navy. The Navy Marine Corps team, again, is that power projection. I mean, um, we've seen that just recently uh, with the Macon Island uh, ARG and uh, with the Teddy Roosevelt uh, being in the South China Sea. 
we want to make sure that our presence is known, that our allies understand that we are there to protect their interests. Um, just this week, uh, the Philippines and the, and the uh, uh, U.S. have uh, joined in joint exercise, which we haven't done in quite a while. And, uh, you know, this is an opportunity for us, again, to ensure our partners, our allies, that we are there, uh, that their interests are ours, and uh, we're going to power project. But that deterrent uh, posture is very important to preclude us from getting into any kind of situation that uh, we as a nation really don't want to be in. Yes. Uh, the um, there, There's a historical question on this, too, that I think you might enjoy. There's Some of the audience have asked about the Asiatic fleet, the experiences with that. And I think the, the culminating is the Battle of Java Sea, something that I've also looked at recently as well. Um, I guess the lessons that would be on position, it's the relationship with the Marines that, I mean, there's a lot of folks here that are watching that are on the, that are off in Hawaii that'll be, that are thinking about this, the, the, you know, the, the evolution of the con-ops and the development, the building up of the familiarity with the ports and the waters that was very key. That was something we didn't have in the Dutch East Indies in the early months of World War II. Um, there, and I think there's, there's definitely a role for First Fleet and opening up the doors and getting that familiarity in partnership with the Marines. And hopefully that's something, we're just on the beginning of the idea that evolves into it with the CONOPS. But we do know in the press that Admiral Aquilino is still looking at and evolving the idea. We know that in the Pentagon that the idea of First Fleet is still, still on, on some folks' minds. Is there any insight or I guess any historical uh, lessons, specifically Asiatic Fleet or Java Sea, with the folks on packed fleet staff or an OPNAV staff that are probably tasked with looking at and developing this idea that you might want to share? Yeah, no, great question. Um, you know, I am uh, uh, a student of that period of history, and uh, I am a big fan of uh, Admiral Thomas Seahart, uh, Naval Academy class of 1897, who was the Asiatic commander um, during the period that you discussed. And uh, what Admiral Hart was given was a mission for failure from the very beginning. I mean, none of the ABDA assets had ever uh, exercised together. There was no planning. There was no common language uh, of communication. So uh, even though they had the assets uh, to defend themselves and to check Japanese aggression, uh, they didn't do that or they couldn't because they didn't have that interoperability. One of the things that I did as secretary was uh, engage with our allies to create not only interoperability, but interchangeability, which I feel is, is the concept we need to focus on in the future. Um, as many of our viewers know, um, we have a Marine Corps squadron operating aboard HMS Queen Elizabeth. Um, I was a huge advocate uh, for that and signed the final authorization making that happen for the first time. Uh, since the end of the Second World War, that we had actually put a U.S. military asset under the command of a foreign government. Um, that squadron is steaming with uh, Queen Elizabeth and will be part of uh, that battle group as she uh, nearly circum well circumnavigate, but she'll go all the way from the Atlantic over to the Western Pacific, um, you know, as part of her her mission. So looking at that and talking through what could be. Um, I discussed that with other ministers of defense, uh, you know, that interchangeability so that we could put U.S. military, U.S. Navy and Marine Corps assets 
under the command and control of others, as well as they putting their assets uh, under our command and control. Mm. And so um, that's the force multiplier. That's the ability of being more capable, that if we are entering into a new era of great power competition, you know, how do we have parity or how do we stay one step ahead of uh, any potential competitor? Um, you know, we do that through the uniqueness of those partnerships um, and alliances um, and, you know, embrace the assets and resources uh, that our allies have. Um, that's the uh, delta between what we saw in 1941 and early 1942 and where we could be in the future. And so, again, those lessons um, of what we experienced then we need to make sure that we don't, uh, you know, repeat that, that an alliance, a partnership, a fleet on paper isn't just that on paper as it was with ABDA, that it was in fact or is in fact something that is operationally capable and can check um, the aggressive nature of, uh, of any potential adversary. Yes, sir. Um, I've got, we're coming close to the end of our time. Uh, there's a few more questions that are coming in the audience. If you've got... Any final thoughts or questions? I would get them in now. Uh, this is probably the second to well, last. Well, I'm not going away unless unless the good <laughs> Lord decides I'm going away. So you know, I'm 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 interested in uh, you know in future discussions about this as well because you know I I, I believe that you know the United States Navy needs to um, look at our our current structure and we need to place our assets and resources where they're going to do the most good, advancing the interests of our nation. And uh, as we have seen in just the recent weeks, um, the emergence of, uh, you know, uh, potential competitors in that part of the world begs the question that, you know, we need a first fleet. Um, this isn't a concept that uh, is something that uh, was, you know, half-baked. Um, doubles in the details, as always, and figuring out, uh, you know, how uh, uh, that's integrated into the current command and control structure. Um, I leave that up to people uh, like my classmate, uh, uh, Chris Aquilino, who is a, a brilliant strategist and would do very well having that additional resource and asset under his command when he's the new Indo-PACOM commander. So uh, this is probably the final questions. We can go a little longer if your schedule will allow. But again, audience, you get your questions in, in, the, in now because we're going to be closing off probably in the very near, near in a few minutes. Uh, there's a question about the, the Ever Given. This was the the tanker that turned sideways in the Suez Canal and shut down traffic for about a week. Now, the first fleet at that crossroads of the end of the Indo and Pacific, Indo-Pacific, sits at the Straits of Malacca. There's actually several straits that it would be proximate to. Are there any lessons that a first fleet, uh, you know, in formulating it, should take into account of what we learn or what we're seeing on the Suez? And more importantly, something that, I, that I've brought to light that in my studies of this is that we don't really have any capability of clearing straits if this was if we were to have something like this happen again in the in the Pacific, where it might, you know, cause a redirection or shut down a, a port, for for example. Yeah, well, I think well, the great lesson learned there is just how fragile the sea lanes are, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, how one accident in one choke point um, can impact the economies of many nations around the world. So we need to be cognizant of that, right? And we need to recognize 
um, you know, what those requirements could be if we found ourselves in a similar situation. That doesn't mean that, you know, we'll be able to rush to the fire and put it out as quickly as we'd like, but we need to be able to marshal those resources and assets so that, you know, we have them in, in proximity. Again, going back to the lessons of the police department and putting a precinct where the flashpoints are. Um, you know, what early on concepts for First Fleet were more uh, Eastern Indian Ocean uh, moving, uh, you know, back towards the Pacific, you know, talking about the Suez and you know, looking at the line of demarcation that uh, by which uh, uh, the Indian Navy uh, divides, uh, you know, their area of interest in the Indian Ocean, um, I think would be one that uh, the United States Navy uh, should embrace uh, to create that kind of parity. So again, we create that alignment. You know, we've got a great ally in Japan. Um, and, you know, having uh, worked with them in the past, having had the opportunity and good fortune to engage with them as secretary, um, you know, they're a great, wonderful anchor up in the uh, western, northern western Pacific. You know, as we move down uh, through the straits and into India, I think the other end, uh, the bookend, if you will, is India. Um, again, I can't emphasize enough. I spent time in Pakistan and Islamabad. Um, you know, during OEF. And uh, I can tell you that the uh, United States at this point in time um, has to ensure that India understands and recognizes um, that, uh, you know, they are our chief ally in that part of the world. We need to embrace them as such. And we need to, again, think outside uh, the envelope um, as to what those historical relationships have been. Not missing the fact that, you know, I served as a diplomat and I understand the you know, the sensitivities around um, those type of commitments where we single one nation out over another. But, you know, the time has come when the United States has got to step up and we've got to um, identify those who are most important, uh, you know, friends and allies um, and and not be uh, hesitant to do that. Um, again, you know, I'm reminded of, uh, of uh, an Abraham Lincoln quote. Uh, basically, Abraham Lincoln, right before he issued the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st of 1863, he sent a letter to Congress. And in it, he said, when the challenges are new, you know, we need to think anew. We need to act anew. And I think that's where we are at this point in time in the history of the world. The United States and the United States Navy in particular as the former secretary. I believe we've got to think anew and act anew in a way that uh, we can learn from some of the pages of the past. Um, but we've got to think about, um, you know, what the challenges are, um, what kind of requirements uh, are going to present themselves and what kind of resources do we have to meet those requirements? Okay, so final question. Um, and this one has to do with morale, where the Navy is today. I mean, there's lots of pressures. I mean, during your time as Secretary of the Navy, there was certainly a set of pressures that you were under in, in leading the Navy. Uh, the Navy, now you have a budget that's that looks like it's a little flat, it, maybe a little less than flat, it's a little negative actually, uh, that's being pushed forward. You have questions about, well, we have uh, extremism in the ranks, uh, there's been a stand down, so there's a lot of things that Navy is having to deal with. I guess from your vantage point of what you've seen, and now that you're out of government, um, I guess what is your, your take on the morale of the Navy, and I guess how to go forward? What's the best way forward? So the Navy and the Marine Corps are incredibly capable and extremely professional organizations. And that's inherent to what they are, um, why they exist, 
and what they do for our nation each and every day. Hmm. It's contingent upon the leadership um, to adhere to a standard uh, that is um, beyond reproach. It's one of the things that I felt very strongly all throughout my naval service, that when an individual accepts a role of responsibility, they have to hold themselves to a standard that's greater than self. They've got to put themselves in a place where understanding that their actions and what they do um, send a signal greater than anything in the immediate. Um, it could infect, affect the entire organization. And I think that many people don't really think beyond the immediate of today or, you know, what their actions mean. I mean, I, I was appalled and I still am. And one of the things that I wanted to do while I was secretary is finalize, you know, the whole Glenn Marine defense uh, debacle, fiasco, what, whatever you want to call it. I mean, a stain on the rich history of such a great organization as the United States Navy. Um, you know, and then coming through some of the other challenges and crises that, um, you know, that uh, the Navy faced. Every organization faces crisis. Every organization faces challenges. But it goes back to what I talked about during my confirmation here, and that is culture. Um, and leaders need to embrace culture. They need to uh, be a proponent for what it is that makes culture important to an organization. Um, and again, that comes back to the responsibilities of leadership, both civilian leadership. So the new secretary um, will have to have this in her or his mind as they think forward, but also the uniform leadership. Um, you know, I remember being a midshipman of the Naval Academy and my first classman at the time, Mr. Jim Girding of uh, Massachusetts, taking us aside and said, ladies and gentlemen, you've now uh, joined the ranks of one of uh, the most revered institutions in the United States, whether that's true or not, we'll leave that up for debate. But um, at the time, you know, we as young plebes, we we took, I took Mr. Gerding's uh, message to heart. And what he said was, we live under Klieg lights. Whatever you do as an individual reflects back on this institution. Um, and anything negative that would take away from the fabric of all those who have gone before us and what they have done, um, if it isn't done in the right manner could detract, it could lessen, um, it could actually reverse the course of something that is greater than self. And that was the message that I tried to continuously get across, um, especially amongst the senior leadership of both the Navy and the Marine Corps, that the responsibility that an individual has when they embrace a role as a flag officer um, or as a civilian leader is contingent upon just that, establishing you know, strong cultural ties so that trust is established up and down the chain of command. But it starts at the top. And we as leaders, we need to embrace that and we need to live by that. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. I remember talking to the flag officers and I'm sure I'll have this opportunity again. I hope I do to say, you know, if you aspire to great roles of responsibility, then you're going to have to hold yourself to a standard that's beyond reproach. That's not an easy thing to do. So if anybody is not comfortable with doing that, because we have to have zero tolerance. We, we can't afford as an organization to allow the actions of any one or even a few to detract from what it is that the organization has been asked to do. Um, and to be part of something like the United States Marine Corps or the United States Navy is a special, it's, it's a special trust that our nation has given to us. 
Um, so I think it comes back to that, Brent. And I would argue that the morale of our sailors isn't as bad as the media makes it out to be. Remember, I was a pilot uh, to begin with, but I was NPQ'd and ended up becoming uh, a public affairs officer, having to deal with the media all the time. You know, they deal in the drama and the sensationalism of what the news is. And, you know, the mundane doesn't necessarily sell uh, newspapers or gain market share um, on, uh, on our television screens. Um, so they have to talk about that. Are, are there issues? Yeah, there's issues. But there's issues in any complex organization when you lead it. I'll tell you that, whether it's in the private or public sector. Um, and we, we have those individuals that we need to work with and we need to identify and we need to eliminate or we need to bring them on board so that they are, you know, a contributive part of the overall fabric of the organization. But at the end of the day, the men and women who are serving in the United States Navy, United States Marine Corps today um, are professionals who hold themselves as such, who are prepared to perform tomorrow as their forebears uh, performed yesterday. And we as uh, people in America can be very proud of their service um, and very reassured by their capabilities um, in that space. So it's been a real pleasure to be with you, Brent. And uh, I really uh, have enjoyed this. And uh, hopefully I've, uh, I've uh, opened up or the curtain, if you will, on what the ideas were behind First Fleet and uh, why I'm still a huge advocate and proponent of still moving in that direction. Well, thank you again very much, Ambassador Brathwaite, for your time today uh, and those really keen insights for why the time was right and why a First Fleet was the right way to go. I think, I mean, we'll see how th where Pack Fleet, Admiral Aquilino, up at, when he gets up to Indopaycom, how the idea matures and comes forward. Uh, but again, thank you for your time and especially for those encouraging words at the end there. And of course, also to the audience, thank you for your time today and those wonderful questions. I, I hope I did did you all service. I tried to convey the intent and spirit of those questions and get everyone addressed in some ways, but much as possible. So as we continue these dialogues in the future, audience participation is very key. And again, thank you uh, for your time today, Ambassador Brethwaite. And uh, I, I apologize for if my words got a little muddled. This is one of the disadvantages of not being in person. Uh, but yes, 1984 graduate of the Naval Academy, not another very illustrious year of classmates of mine of 1994, <laughs> which is just a habit. It just rolls off my tongue. Uh, go 94. Um, but uh, and of course, you know, beat Army Can, cannot end this without saying that. And I see a few Army folks on the line over there, so that's, that's a shout out to you folks. And with that, I think if there's nothing else, Ambassador, I think we have to turn this over to Catherine, who will close out the event. Thank you very much again, Brent. Real pleasure to be with you. God bless everybody.